you guys were that excited for sermon time. <laughs> if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is going to be our primary text this morning. So, you just want to take a look around the room. Looks like all, all the kids left. It is a kind of a delicate uh, topic this morning, so we just want to make sure we had that out in front. If I saw any kids out here, they're not, so... There are many subtle proofs to me that the Bible is truly God's Word. One of those truths is, in fact, that the Bible does not sugarcoat the failures of central figures. As a matter of fact, apart from Christ, every other central figure had a fault. Noah would get drunk and have his nakedness and need to have his nakedness covered up. Abraham would tell a half-truth that Sarah was his sister instead of his wife. The half-truth is that she was a half-sister. Different time, but so... Jacob would steal his brother's birthright. Judah would sleep with what he thought was a prostitute that turned out to be his daughter-in-law. Crazy story in the book of Genesis. Uh, So Moses would kill a man. The Bible never covers up the fact that many of its central figures have these issues, right? The same is true in the New Testament. Peter denied Christ and cut off someone's ear. Uh, James and John wanted Jesus to call fire down from heaven to destroy an entire city. Paul would call himself a chief of sinners, right? We, we read about Stephen in the book of Acts. That's what our Sunday school lesson was today. But that's just one encounter. I mean, that was a normal thing for Steve, or for Paul at that time. So all of these figures we see, right? Uh, aside from Eve eating the forbidden fruit, there's no transgression in the Bible as well known as David's sin and his fall with Bathsheba. Uh, let's do a little review of David's life, right? We first met David as a humble shepherd boy who was left in the field watching his, sheep, his father's sheep while his brothers were around Samuel for this anointing. He's not there, right? Samuel sends out for what has to be that next king to be anointed, and David comes in, and he's anointed that king of Israel. Uh, and, and then from there, he was relentlessly chased by King Saul. He refused to kill Saul, who was the Lord's anointed. He was established as the king of Israel. He was promised by God that he would have a descendant on, the, on his throne forever. A forever kingdom. This is David, right? David was loved by his people. He was respected by his enemies. At this point in David's life, the kingdom of Israel covered 60,000 square miles of space. That's roughly the size of the state of Florida. Now today, in in reference, it covers about 8,000 square miles, which is roughly the size of the state of New Jersey. Everything that David did and touched was turned to gold. Remember, he's a man after God's own heart. He's a celebrated leader and figure. He's a role model for every Jewish man. Every Jewish father would have wanted his daughter to marry a man like David. Every Jewish boy would have looked up to David. As a matter of fact, if, if there would have been a toy store in Jerusalem at this time, there would have been an aisle with David action figures uh, covering it, that aisle. This is important to remember when we consider the fact that what we're going to see next is it's heartbreaking. We're really going to see the details of a madman. And what can knock a man like David off of a pedestal more quickly than sin, right? And this is what is going to take place. If you look around our world today, there's no sin or alleged sin that can derail a man of power more than sexual sin. Our news media outlets a few years ago tried to keep a Supreme Court nominee from getting in with that sin, right? Uh, an evangelical Christian leader in our world that's well known in the 90s and the 2000s that every other church leader would want to emulate, well, he was derailed because of accusations of this sin. 
Even recently, there's a well-known Christian leader in Texas that had to leave his pulpit. And what derailed him, it was not this sin, but even the hint of this sin with inappropriate messages being shared back between him and a woman who is not his wife. This next chapter we're going to read is a difficult chapter to read. And this is exactly what was going to hinder David's effective reign as the king of Israel for the rest of his life. Because make no mistake about it, after David walks through the door of sin that he's about to walk through, everything in his life is going to change. And before we dig into this text, there's one verse that I really think every one of us should put in our hearts and minds. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. It says, therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. And as we look at the text this morning, I, I want you to keep this question to the, on the forefront of your mind. How could David do such a thing? How could he do such a thing? Let's look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they brought destruction to the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem. Rainy season was done. It was time for the king to lead his army out to war. And think about the difference in our world today, right? We have football season. We have deer hunting season. We have turkey season. Back then they had war season. And so it was war season. Uh, But David, uh, their their nation was going to besiege or, or go to war with the Ammonites. And they besieged this city, but David should have been there with his men. And instead of being there with his men, the king stayed back. And understand the king would not be on the front lines, but he would be there to lend moral support, even strategical battle planning. David was enjoying the spoils of having a strong army with great leaders. He was able to stay back and rest. He had nothing but time on his hands. Look at verse 2. Now at evening time, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. The text gives us the idea that this was not a planned event. There there are some that indicate that David knew what was going to take place. There are some that indicate that Bathsheba knew what was going to take place. After all, her house was inside the cities of the wall, or the walls of the city. and, And she would have been able to look out and see the palace from there. It was evening. David is taking a nap. His men are off at war. They're laying siege to a city. They're preparing for battle. And David, possibly stretching out, enjoying the beauty of his kingdom, looked down and he saw Bathsheba. Did you notice what the text says? Not only that she was beautiful, but that she was very beautiful. And she was bathing. Let's assume that David had no idea what he was going to see. David sees Bathsheba and he stays there. He stays there. Not only is it wrong to assume that David knew what he was going to encounter, it's equally wrong to assume that Bathsheba did not know. Bathsheba may not have known that David was going to be there at that time, but she should have known that there was that possibility. She should have been more cautious. Raymond Brown, in his work on David's life, he wrote this. When we read this terrible story, we instinctively think of the offense as David's sin, but this attractive woman cannot be entirely excused. Bathsheba was careless and foolish. Lacking in the usual Hebrew modesty, or she certainly would have not washed in a place where she knew she could be overlooked. From a rooftop, she would often have looked out to the royal palace and must have known that she could have been seen. It's not enough to merely avoid sin ourselves. The New Testament insists that Christians must ensure that they do not become a stumbling block for others. If David had gone to war, he would not have seen Bathsheba that night. If she had thought seriously about her action... This would not have put temptation in both of their paths. David noticed the beauty of Bathsheba. 
Think about that. What should have happened in that moment? David walking out on that roof, looking down and see a woman who was not his wife should have said, that's not my wife, and turned around and walked back in the palace. But he didn't. He lingered. I'm not sure if you're aware of this reality or not, but we live in a world where anything goes. Anything goes, right? I can remember 30 years ago in the Columbus City Schools, we had to take two classes as seniors. We had to take sociology and we had to take civics. In the sociology class, our, our teacher... He said the world was driven by two things. Do you know what those two things are? Hamburgers and sex. Think about that. You start watching TV late at night, what are the commercials? The commercials are about food. And haven't you noticed lately that one restaurant changes, that they kind of changed their, their structure. But do you remember not too long ago that Hardee's and, and Carl's, what their ads were? The scantily clad women selling hamburgers. I think that teacher might have been a genius. But, but or at least seen what was taking place. We also live in a Me Too movement era, right? Uh, this is a movement that links women together who have been victims of sexual abuse and assault. There's never a reason for sexual abuse or assault. Never. I, I want to be clear on that. There's never a reason for that. There's never an excuse that that takes place. But, can I push against the narrative just a tiny bit? Call me old-fashioned in this, but I believe that women have to be aware of what's taking place and how they interact with men and how they dress and, and what kind of things go on. The problem of lust is not just a problem for men either. One of the fastest growing demographics for pornography in our society today is young women. When you happen upon something that is tempting, here's the key. Don't linger. Don't linger. There's no direct hint in the text about the author's belief of who the responsibility was for this sin. But make no mistake about it, it was both David and Bathsheba are responsible for what's about to take place. Let's look at verse 3. So David sent servants and inquired about the woman. Who is this woman? The wrong question. Actually, it's a question that he should have never asked. Notice what takes place, though. And someone said that someone, I think is a servant, someone said, is this not Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Right? He, he took this person, this someone, I believe a servant of David, took this person and he gave her an identity. She's not just something to be used. David, this is Bathsheba. Maybe this servant understood what was taking place in David's mind. Maybe this servant might have even been out on the rooftop with him at that time. And then realized, okay, I don't like what's going on here. David, back up. This is Bathsheba. This is a person, right? This is not someone to be used. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is a lion. David, you know a lion, right? Don't, don't bring any disgrace to his family. Hey, you know Uriah. He's one of your mighty men. David, don't do this thing. He, he gave David this opportunity, right, to, to jump off, but he doesn't. His servant knew exactly what was taking place. Look at verse 4. Then David sent messengers and had her brought. And think of, look at the brevity of which this sentence or this verse states what took place. He sent messengers and had her brought. And when she came to him, he slept with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And it's just a matter-of-fact nature. He sent for her. She came to him. He slept with her. You don't have to read between the lines to see what's taking place. David, a romantic king, a man of power, Bathsheba, lonely and a desired person, 
We must be careful in, assume, in assuming any force or coercion. The rest of the text seems to indicate that Bathsheba was a willing participant. As a matter of fact, when you dig back into the law, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 through 27, spell this specific instance out and say, if a woman is abused out in the wilderness and she screams and there's no one there to hear her, I'm paraphrasing this, then she's not guilty of sin because no one was there to hear her. But if she's abused like this in the city and does not scream, She's part of the problem. She's a willing participant. They're in the walls of the palace. Let's look at verse 5. But the woman conceived, so she sent word and informed David and said, I am pregnant. Man. The, what we're about to read, the rest of what we're about to read, is the saddest point of David's life. It's, a, it's the point of his life that's going to change not only him, but it's going to change his family structure and everything that's going to take place afterwards. It's the cover-up. And I believe we should assume that Bathsheba was very, very aware of everything that David was doing. Let's read verses 6 through 13. Then David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked about Joab's well-being and that of the people and the condition of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the king's house, and the gift from the king was sent after him, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they informed David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Should I then go to my house eat and drink and sleep with my wife by your life and the life of your soul I will not do this thing then David said to Uriah stay here today also and tomorrow I will let you go back so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the day after now David summoned Uriah and he ate and drank in his presence and made Uriah drunk and in the evening Uriah went out and, uh, to lie on his bed with the Lord's servants and he still did not go down to his house it turns out that Uriah the Hittite was a more righteous man than the king. It turns out that the Uriah the Hittite was a more faithful man than the king. He, he realized that the king and the Lord's Ark were out, or the king's army and the Lord's Ark were out somewhere, that he should not enjoy the spoils of life when other people were in danger. And so he decides not to go. And David, what's he do? I'll just get him drunk. He'll lose all of his inhibitions and he'll go. And even that didn't cause Uriah the Hittite to go. This next section is the saddest point. Verses 14 through 21. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter following, Station Uriah on the front line of the fiercest battle and pull back from him so that he may be struck and killed. Seriously? David? What are you doing? Verse 16. So when Joab kept watch on the city that he stationed Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Man, think about that. So Joab, I wonder when Joab gets this letter what he's thinking, right? I wonder if Joab was able to put two and two together, or more importantly, one and one. He knew who David was. Maybe he knew who Bathsheba was, and all of a sudden he gets this letter. Hey, 
basically, why don't you kill Uriah the Hittite? And in order not to make it look like evident, he puts not only Uriah up front, but others up front as well. And other men die in the same battle that David wanted to use to cover up his sin. Verse 18, And Joab sent a messenger and reported to David all the events of the war. He ordered the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, then it shall be that if the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you move against the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerobosheth? Did a woman not throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you move against the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Man, how could you do such a thing? Imagine the disappointment in the heart of Joab, probably knowing exactly what's taking place. Verses 22 through 25. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David everything that Joab had sent to him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Also the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants died, and your servant Uriah the Hittite also died. Then David said to the messenger, This is what you shall do, say to Joab. Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Fight with determination against the city and overthrow it, and thereby encourage him. A man after God's own heart. Does this make anybody else angry? Look at verses 26 and 27 there. Now, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah was dead, she mourned for her husband. Now David's going to play the hero. When the time of mourning was over, David sent servants and had her brought to his house, and she became his wife, and then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. How could David do such a thing? I want to attempt to answer that question. However, as I'm answering that question, I don't want us to focus in on David's sin. As egregious as that sin is, as angry as that sin makes us, I don't want us to focus in on that. I want us to focus in on maybe the thing that tempts us, maybe the thing that leads us to a point of where we could do something that could bring about great shame on us on our family, on somebody else's family, on the body of Christ as a whole. And I want us to be able to answer that question How, by, by this. How can I place myself in a position that I will not fall when temptation comes? What lessons can we learn from David? And here's the first one. David took his eyes off of God's Word. He took his eyes off of God's Word. One of our greatest challenges in life is not how we respond when life is difficult, but when we're blessed. We have to understand that the fall with Bathsheba was not a sudden event. This didn't just all of a sudden happen. There were little things that led up to this, and I believe the first little thing that led up to this is that God's Word became less prominent in David's life. 2 Samuel 5, 12. And David realized that the Lord had appointed him as king over Israel, and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. He understood this fact, but Satan is tricky, right? When things are well, when you're blessed, these things creep in, right? And if he can't first get you to fall with a clear sin and temptation, he'll begin to work on your pride. And this is exactly what he did to David. How? Well, David started marrying many women and taking in concubines. 2 Samuel 5.13 Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem, and after he had came from Hebron, 
and more sons and daughters were born to David. Uh, it was common for a king in David's day to do this thing. However, the word of God spoke directly against this. Directly against it. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 17, they'll be on the screen. I'll paraphrase them, but God says, listen, there's going to come a time when you call a king, and when that king comes into place, that king shouldn't rely upon chariots and horses and an army, and that king shouldn't bring in concubines into his home. Why did God say that? Because he knew that this would be a very thing that would derail a man of God. When you go back through David's story, he took another man's wife already. Sure, it was Michael. And it was his first wife that, that Saul gave away to another man, but David would have nothing to do with that. And so he took her and, and had her live the rest of her life in obscurity. And, and, and he filled up his harem with concubines. And just so we're aware what a concubine is, it's a woman who's not a wife that's being used for sexual gratification and service. Let's think about how difficult it would have been to be an advisor to King David. Just somebody to come in and speak truth to him. You're standing outside looking in. You know the provision of God's word. You know that God's commanded the king uh, not to take many wives. So what if he's married a few women and he's added a few concubines to his harem? This is exactly what God's word told him not to do. And he started down the path to do that very thing. He took his eyes off of the Lord's word, and in doing so, he placed himself in a position where Satan could tempt him. God's word must hold the central place of authority in our lives. How can we place ourselves in a position to overcome temptation and sin? The first step, know and obey God's Word. It's time that we stop treating God's Word as this optional convenience in our lives. It's not an optional convenience. We need to know what this book says. And as we know what this book says, we need to submit ourselves to what it says and allow it to be the authority in our lives. The psalm writer said, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word, with all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The Apostle Paul would write these words to a young Christian leader, Timothy. All scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuking, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. How can we do this? Know and obey God's word. Second mistake. David was not dressed for battle. He was not dressed for battle. At this moment in David's life, he should have been a hat on his armor instead of his robe. <laughs> he should have had his armor on instead of his robe. There's a big difference there. If David had been off at war, he would not have seen Bathsheba bathing on the roof. And if he would have not, and if he would have known his weaknesses in which he should have, he could have been prepared for this temptation. And being addressed for battle, David would have been prepared for the attacks of the enemy but he would also have been aware of his own vulnerability. And that's what being ready for battle means. Where does temptation come from, friends? Right? Some might say uh, it comes from the outside. For David, he could have said, well, he pointed at Bathsheba. It was her fault, Lord. That's what Adam did, right? It's that woman you put here with me. Or, or he could have blamed God. Lord, Lord, you created me. It's your fault. Adam pointed the, uh, to the Lord. You put her here. Temptation to sin is never external. Let me make sure we understand that. It's never external. It's never something that's outside of us. Because if it was something that was outside of us, we'd all be tempted to fall to the same things. It's something that's internal. You know how I know that? Because God's Word. No one is to say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has run its course, brings forth 
death, that David was dressed and ready for battle, he would not have seen, he would have seen this attempt from Satan and wouldn't have been able to overcome it. In my understanding of the way the devil works, he shows, he never shows us the outcome of our sin. Have you ever noticed that? He tempts us with things, but never shows us the outcome. He never shows us where those decisions will lead. The first drink rarely comes with the realization of a broken life. The first hit does not come with a vision of loved ones standing over the graves of an accidental overdose. The first glance of the eventual adulterer rarely comes with a mental picture of broken-hearted children wondering what caused the mess in their home. This is serious stuff that's taking place here. And when the bill of sin comes due, you know who's never there? The one who tempts us. Satan. How can we place ourselves in a position to overcome temptation and sin? We've got to be dressed and ready for battle. We have to know that there's an enemy, an adversary, that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. 1 Peter 5.8 It's been nearly 30 years since I went to basic training. But in basic training, it was, it was clear, right? One of the lessons I remember in basic training is that there always has to be someone on watch. Always has to be someone on watch. Even in basic training, in a protected uh, base, a military base, every night you walk into any barracks of, of soldiers that are being trained, and you'll find two people on watch. Why? Just to let, us, let you understand that when you're in a battle, you always have to be prepared. David took off his armor, and he put on his robe, and he wasn't at watch. Paul wrote these words, Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Here's David's third mistake. He failed to run. David failed to run. Have you ever noticed that we'll run away from things we're afraid of? In my neighborhood, it was dogs. Right? I was going down to the Linden Recreation Center, and there was a pit bull that, that every now and then this thing could jump the fence. And, and so I'd walk on the other side of the street, and, and that thing jumped the fence one time, and I outran this pit bull. The problem was is I ran straight across Cleveland Avenue without looking either way, and I could have been killed, but I wasn't going to let that pit bull get me. It stopped on the other side. Uh, we'll run away from a swarm of bees. We'll run away from a spider. We'll run away from a snake. Why is it that we'll run away from physical threats, but we'll stare spiritual threats in the eye like we're going to square up with it? Right? These temptations come into sin, and we think, well, I can handle it. I can, I, I can do this instead of fleeing and running. We have to understand that we've got to do the very same thing that Joseph did. Joseph in the Old Testament, when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, you know what he did? He ran. He ran. He fled from that scene. How can we place ourselves in a position to overcome temptation and sin? We've got to run away from the devil, and we've got to run toward God. The Bible says, now if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And what did Paul write through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? In Colossians chapter five, chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, he says, basically, get rid of all of these sins. Flee from them. Run from them. James tells us in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Sometimes the best way to run, resist the, the temptation from the devil is to run from God, and r run from Satan, and run toward God. It's, it's that simple. One more mistake David made. David missed the off-ramp. 
And it's the offering. One part of the account of David's sin with Bathsheba, it's often overlooked, is that servant. That man that spoke up. That person that said, this is Bathsheba, this is Eliam's daughter, this is Uriah's wife. He was accountable to no one. Imagine how difficult it would have been to confront King David. He's a humble beginning, a giant killer, two decades of impeccable leadership, quality leaders all around him, a respected military force, never lost on the battlefield, a promise of an everlasting kingdom. Who could stand up and point a finger at David? Who could stand up and tell David to stop? He missed his off-ramp when his servant spoke up. He should have seen it. I ask you to remember 1 Corinthians 10, 12. It said, therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. Paul wrote these words directly after that. He says, no temptation is overtaking you except something common to mankind. And God is faithful. So he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. Imagine for a moment how different David's life would have ended up. And we're not going to cover everything, every failure, but let me just quickly say, David would have a son rape his half-sister, and then you'd have the full-blooded brother of that sister kill that son. And then that son that killed that, that other son would try to overthrow his kingdom and sleep with his concubines on the roof of the palace. I mean, this is a mess. This is Jerry Springer kind of stuff that's going to take place. Imagine how different it would have been if David would look over at that servant and said, You know what? That is your eyes, wife. That is a lion's daughter. That is a child of God. And walk back into his palace. How can we place ourselves in a position to overcome temptation and sin? We must make ourselves accountable to God and fellow Christians. When we do, they'll give us that off-ramp that we need. They'll give it to us. A few years back, April and CJ and I were traveling to Port Canaveral uh, and uh, for a cruise. It was around Mother's Day, and our goal was to make it uh, you know, somewhere to Georgia and stay over, but... Like we always do when we go on these, you know, trips, we get a certain way and we think, okay, I got to keep going because we're we're almost there. We might as well keep going. So we called the hotel, and, and uh, so at the ho- the hotel had our room. We could stay the extra night, and so we just stayed on the road. And as soon as we crossed the Florida line, we had to get gas, and so we got gas and we got back on the freeway. But something interesting started happening with the GPS on my phone. Uh, it started saying, "Take the next exit." And April said, are you sure we shouldn't take the next? I said, that thing doesn't know what it's talking about. I, I went the right way. Uh, and so then we come up to the next exit, and it says, take the next exit. And, and I don't remember exactly what happened. I might have even turned it off because I was frustrated with it. But I noticed something. I, I noticed the mile marker is getting larger instead of smaller. And I thought, man. I looked over at April and said, I should have taken the exit. Uh, at that point, we had traveled 45 minutes out of the way. So you know what that means, right? We are now an hour and a half out of the way because we've got to turn about and go back uh, to where we were going on an already long trip. And I'm not kidding you. April and CJ didn't talk to me for about an hour and a, a whole hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, they were upset. So I didn't take the off-ramp when the voice told me I should. And the truth is, is I think when temptation comes our way, we have that off-ramp, whether it be the Holy Spirit telling us not to go down a path, whether it be a friend or family member telling us we're walking in the, wrong, in the wrong direction. And just like me ignoring that phone saying, take the off-ramp, we stubbornly keep going, thinking that we have the ability to overcome what we're going to face. And we need to learn from David here. We need to learn from him and understand that if we're going to put ourselves in a position where we're not going to fall, 
And we've got to know and obey God's Word. We've got to be dressed and ready for battle. We've got to resist the devil and draw near to God. And we've got to take the off-ramp when it's given to us. Next week, next week we're going to take a look at David's repentance. Some people are still have a difficult time with David's repentance. I believe what we're going to see in that moment is what truly makes him a man after God's own heart. But for now, the truth is, is David failed. He failed. And, And just remember that one verse there at the end. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. What made David a man after God's own heart is his repentance. Since God has made a way out and his name is Jesus. And, and if you are here today and, and you've had some kind of failure like that, I, I want you to know that I can't preach the entire sermon for next week, but come back. But know this. Know this. God can and will forgive if you trust in Christ. If you surrender to him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the love you give us and the grace in Christ. We're thankful, God, that you tell us the truth from your scripture through people who are central figures. But like many of us, their lives are wrecked from personal decisions, from things that they'll come to regret. But God, even in that, you provide a way back. It's your grace. It's your mercy. It's found in Christ. And even as we live out the consequences of our sin on this earth, we can trust and know that you've taken care of that through Christ. So, Lord, whatever it is, help us to trust in you. Help us to trust in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Remember, the devil will not be present when the bill of sin comes due. You know who was? Jesus. He was present when the bill came due. And from the cross, his last words were, It is Paid in full. If you've not accepted Christ, what's keeping you from doing so today? Let's stand and sing together.